Welcome to the Supergirl Supercast. We're starting Season 5 with Episode 1, Event Horizon. I'm Trishy Matson, And I'm David Schaub. And I would just like to say, pants! Pants, indeed. <laughs> okay, can you uh, give us a recap, please? Andrea Rojas shows up with AR contact lenses for the masses. She hires Kelly, buys Catco, hires Jerky McJerkface William, and lets Catco in on what the internet has done to the news. John's brother introduces himself and builds a Phantom Zone projector to release Batty of the Week Midnight, who is quickly defeated, but she almost spaghettifies John with a black hole. Kara tells Lena the truth. But Lena is a scorpion drowning in a Pandora's box of revenge plans with an AI named Hope. Brainy makes Kara a new supersuit with pants. In the end, Brainy and Nia kiss, Lena is still pissed at Kara, James quits Catco, and Eve briefly shows up to be abducted. Yep, it was an action-packed premiere. It might have been actually nice to wait until next episode to introduce the villain of the season. So much is going on <laughs> in this episode, but that's okay. I think the strands each had, you know, their points. I, I didn't feel shortchanged on the opening of the new Lena Kara dynamic anyway. Well, that is the most important thing to cover, of course, is this this whole Lena and Kara thing. And I don't think the show quite plays nicely, but uh, in some regards, I can take this episode and I can say, let's just ignore that there was this ridiculous plot in the last episode where Lex tells Lena the truth. We can interpret that, say, if Kara had ever actually gone and said something, maybe this is what Lena would have done anyway. So maybe I can sort of compartmentalize, because this show loves compartmentalizing things, <laughs> and just move forward and say, well, this is the Lena plot we have, and we'll see how they do. I'm not sure if she would have been quite so vitriolic if it hadn't been delivered to her that way by Lex. Just everything he touches with regard to her poisons her. And, you know, that was his parting gift to poison all her relationships and make sure she couldn't have a happy ending. But I am in awe of her plan as it was. That would have been a really nice emotional revenge against Kara. Well, <laughs> nice. <laughs> By nice, I mean well executed. <laughs> As Lena herself says, she's not a villain. She doesn't want to kill Supergirl. But her definition of villain and mine differs since she goes on to say later at the end when she's talking to Hope, which, as you point out, that's just a beautifully ironic name for that AI. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to know what Watsonian reason Lena would call it Hope. I don't know. Well, she says she wants to fix mankind, and she wants to use Supergirl to do that. Okay, Pandora. Yeah. <laughs> Using, not friendship for Kara, but it might not be the revenge plot I would come up with, but it's really kind of breathtaking that her plan was to, at the Pulitzer ceremony, or not the ceremony, the after party, because this is not being held at Columbia where <laughs> the Pulitzer are being given out. Her plan was to, at this uh, party, upload a file that revealed Cara Danvers as the lying Supergirl she has always been. 
And that would have been a really delicious way to out Supergirl and have her revenge all at the same time. And also it would have been, you know, over. So Lena wouldn't have had to brood about it for too long and keep her secret for too long, although she's really, really good at doing it and at twisting the knife while there is a secret. And I just loved when she and Kara were having lunch and she she talks about the sale of Catco and says, I hope you don't feel I've made you out to be too much of a fool by keeping you in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> Everything about that conversation while I don't know if I like the fact that we're in this situation with Lena, I'm just going to put that in a box and say, let's just run with it. Everything about that scene I loved. Yes. Every single word Lena says means two things. And it's all just her twisting the knife and twisting the knife <laughs> and twisting it harder. And it is just beautiful. It was masterful. And I, I almost feel sad that at the end of it, Kara might not have wimped out, but they're going to give us one more wimp out because the plot gives her an excuse to leave. Absolutely, that was a wonderful scene. And I don't know if I agree with Lena, but I think the portrayal and the acting and the writing of Lena is really quite good in this episode. Yes. And of Melissa Benoist, too. She uh, really sold her tearful confession to Lena. I thought that was well done. Uh, on Watsonian terms, I'm really glad that they didn't drag out the now Lena knows for sure, but Kara doesn't know that she knows. They resolved that th this episode, and they would have resolved it either way if Kara hadn't confessed or if she had because of the expose that Lena was planning. I agree that the scene where Kara admits the truth to Lena is just wonderfully done and very strongly emotional. And I like how almost everything she says is a mirror to what Lena said in the previous conversation. There's lots of nice writing going on here. Mm -hmm. And it worked really, really well. The only thing I would question a little bit is not only is Lena faking it, but I don't think they filmed it for Lena to be faking it. It feels maybe they're not playing fairly with us. Everything in that scene, every weight of every decision, so strongly says that Lena may actually be forgiving her here. And it almost feels too far for the fact that this is just a con and all of that trepidation that Lena seemed to be feeling when walking up to the podium. That was just her processing her plan to say, well, I guess I can twist the knife a different way. And they didn't film it that way, really. but. It was a wonderful scene. Um, I bought it. I didn't feel like it was cheating. I felt like uh, Lena is that good of a liar and a manipulator and thinks on her feet that fast. I didn't have any problems with that at all. I thought it was great. I, I suppose I always have difficulty with Lena being a good manipulator when she is also so easily manipulated. But that is the Lena we're given. <laughs> Well, you know, I've heard the hypothesis that liars are e easier to fool if you can just find the right hook for them. But anyway, yeah, so I thought that the emotional beats in this whole episode were well done. I uh, liked the uh, little interplay between Brainy and Nia and thought that that went on for just long enough. 
I also liked the playfulness between all the characters when they were, you know, drawn into the discussion of who's the better movie villain. You know, I, th- I thought there was a lot of fun in this episode, as well as the heavier emotions as we watch betrayal and fake love <laughs> and real love. So I just think there was a lot of good stuff going on in this episode. I didn't really care at all about the new supervillain stuff, but hopefully that'll get more interesting. Certainly, Midnight as a baddie of the week was perhaps one of the most boring baddies of the week that we have ever seen. This episode was called Event Horizon. I don't know why. (laughs) I think it's because of the void balls of... Absolutely. But does any of that matter to this episode? Nothing to do with this episode. And and really, black holes, oh my. (laughs) But yes, I agree. A lot of the social communication between the characters outside of superheroing was really good. I had to look up who Miranda Priestley was to recognize that that was a Devil Wears Prada reference. And the interesting thing there is, in many regards, I would think Cat Grant was somewhat written as a homage to Miranda Priestley, mm-hmm. which sort of feels like it's going around and around. Yeah. <laughs> And I could have got lost in the meta-ness, but it was certainly an interesting conversation. And I liked everything that they did with Nia and Brainy. And Nia is consistently, like last season, the mature adult in the room (laughs) in terms of most things, but certainly relationships. Let's not hoard secrets. Let's, here's an issue. Let's actually talk about it. So, yes, I I enjoy that. Um, It's uh, a little tiresome that they make the joke about the girlfriend is always right. And but I that was in my notes going. "Eh, Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that was Brainy's line about he will assimilate to this frustrating, illogical Earth custom. And at least they didn't draw it out for a long time. Effectively, it just cuts Nia down saying, well, obviously her argument isn't actually sound. She's only right because she's my girlfriend. It's like, really? Right. No, no, no. That's that's not, uh, wrong message. I don't yes. know. The other Nia line I quite liked was, I just need to know what you're comfortable with. And it's just that level of, let's have a grown-up conversation mm-hmm. about where this is going and how this is going to go. I loved the communication of what was going on in that relationship. And it's very understandable that at least we get some fallout to Brainy going all emotionless in the uh, season finale. I didn't totally buy that Brainy has had lots of romantic experience. Uh, It kind of felt like um, Data saying he was fully functional. Um, I mean, it's more like he's been through some sims of romances because he said himself he's never been in love. And he was so awkward last season. So awkward. Is that just sort of the male necessity to overstate one's <laughs> sexual experience? It just seemed wrong coming out of Brainy. I, I didn't quite understand that. It, it was an unnecessary line because that wasn't the important thing, of course. Right. Okay. Um, I guess we should talk a little more about the villain, Midnight. Apparently, she is actually a he who claims to be Sean Jones's brother? Or is the creepy little girl distinct from Midnight? I'm not sure. Okay, I can can help a little bit here. Good. (laughs) The editing didn't help. No. (laughs) All of the editing around the dinosaur, they basically, as far as I can tell, had no budget to show the girl becoming the dinosaur and how the dinosaur got into the pod. And all of that, the effects just sort of cut away when there was a transition, which they didn't want to deal with 
rendering something to make it work. Mm-hmm. Which made it really confusing because initially I wasn't sure that the girl was John's brother. I thought she might have done something to the toy or uh, pretend dinosaur thing to make it grow up and be big and be that big dinosaur because they never show us that transition either way. Right. I wasn't, I just wasn't sure what happened there. The effects were weak there. And then they say there's a shapeshifter, but we never saw any shapeshifting. So it's like, what's going on? Uh, it felt like there was sort of an effects decision, editing decision failure there. And maybe it was just due to budget. Hard to say. But yeah, certainly the little girl all the time is John's brother. I'm still assuming that's John's brother from some maybe other timeline. Who know where the, knows where the monitor got him from? Okay. That might be this timeline. That might not be this timeline because the monitor discovered the multiverse at the mm-hmm. end of the previous crossover. So really, until the show tells me exactly where the brother is from, the name, I believe, is Melifek. Or Ma Alafakak, or something <laughs> similar. We'll see how the show pronounces it. Until they definitively say what this show says that person is, I'm not going to try and really guess anything. We'll see what happens. All we know really is the person claiming to be his brother, there's a weird psychic thing when they come close to each other, presumably because something. There's a reason we don't have an answer for yet. So whenever they come in contact with each other, there's a big psychic backwash and they mm-hmm. both get blown away and knocked unconscious. Okay, so when creepy little girl opened up the portal and someone walked through, who was that? So that was Midnight. The other complication is we find out that John apparently imprisoned Midnight in the Phantom Zone, which is kind of wild in that that implies that John had access to a Phantom Zone projector in order to do that. And generally it's Kryptonian tech, so I don't know how John would have an access to that, but whatever. John previously Phantom Zoned that baddie who was fighting alongside the White Martians. They say that she feeds off death. I don't know if that's literal or figurative. Hard to tell in this show. But anyway, they were locked in the Phantom Zone and John's brother rebuilt a Phantom Zone projector, used it to pull Midnight back out because apparently his brother also knows about her to basically free her to do havoc and that was it okay okay all right midnight has like three lines maybe two in Mm -hmm. the entire episode pretty weak as bad guy of the week okay well thank you i i watched the episode twice but some of that stuff didn't come clear but part of that was because my mind kept racing around you know that's not how journalism works that's not how business works. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. What other plot elements do you want to discuss before we get to that? <laughs> the real question I now have is, can John change shape into a Tyrannosaurus Rex? That's the real question I want answered. Because we've only ever seen <laughs> John change into relatively humanoid-shaped... Right. People-sized... Things. Mm-hmm. So I really want to know if John can transform into dinosaurs, because that's really cool. Let's see. Something else that comes up in the show that we'll probably see more about later is these augmented reality lenses that are being beta tested. When we see them first, Lena's using them to run through revenge scenarios. Then there's a coffee shop where Kara is bumping into people because they are not looking where they're going because they have these lenses in which seems like a bug that needs to be worked out. I assume that they're going to actually become important to a plot at some point in this season. Absolutely. The House of El Crest, 
the S right after the teaser at the beginning of the show had a somewhat digital effect on it. That was new. I am certain, given the discussion of news and clicks and the, having AR and having Kelly working for this entirely new company that came up, because really a lot of things were added here that aren't necessary for this plot. We're now seeing the beginning of that plot for what the season's going to look like, and it's going to be a big high-tech question mark as what people do with their devices. We're going to get a whole lot of click culture stuff. We're going to get a whole lot of AR and VR. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to see a lot of that this season. And I don't know if that really is a particularly meaty subject after dealing with all of the horrible racism and violence and uh, cultural collapse of the last season. It seems a little light, but I would assume that's what we're going to look at this season, except for, of course, everything they need to set up for the crossover. Right. The crossover, of course, will have some kind of effect. I don't know that I really mind going a little lighter for this season. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Last season was good and it had some important things to say, but I don't mind a little more lightheartedness this time around. <laughs> and this will be at least a little more lighthearted, though it'll uh, kick people about the devices that they may be using to watch the show, which is kind of funny. <laughs> I was surprised that the AR tech actually wasn't developed by Lena. So clearly we're going to have to see how the new company and Andrea Rojas works out over the course of the season. There was a little bit of ham-fistiness, I think, in the writing of the initial uh, discussion of AR, where they have to have John have no idea what this technology is. Yeah. Which basically sets our telepath up as being a bit of an idiot. Well, he's not the only one <laughs> in this episode who's set up as an idiot. <laughs> Especially given that it's supposed to be in everyone's house by the end of the year, which would be a quite an impressive market development. But for him to then not even know what it is seemed ridiculous. Mm -hmm. The funniest thing I find about the AR contact lenses, as well as the super suit that we'll get to, is both of them are something that basically has no props in the show. We have a suit that comes out of nothing. And we have glasses, whereas I'm pretty sure no one actually is touching contact lenses. They just sort of wave their hands in front of their eyes, which goes a lot more smoothly than the complexity of taking out a contact lens. <laughs> so there's a lot of, let's just hand wave and say this technology exists, but we're not going to actually physically show you the technology. <laughs> well, that's okay. I, I don't feel like they need to spend a whole lot of time and energy establishing the tech. Just... You know, the effects are going to be what's important about that, not how you take them in and out. I consider trying to find some joke about Kara's suit and the Emperor has no clothes because it's not coming out of anything, but uh, what do you do? <laughs> um, so, about that suit. Obviously, we both like the pants instead of the little cheerleader skirt. Definitely an improvement. Definitely an improvement. For something that is supposed to come on when, uh, when she whips off her glasses and it you know, the suit slowly crawls up her arm. That was like at least 10 second transformation. And it will never be that slow again. I hope so. I mean, Supergirl <laughs> can change her clothes herself with super speed in like one second. So <laughs> it's it's definitely a bug if the suit from nowhere takes a whole 10 seconds to materialize. <laughs> I am very confident that what this show has just done is a magnificent bit of headcanoning to basically say Kara can change her clothes instantly at any point and she can change back instantly at any point and you never have to ask where anything is. We've solved that problem. 
the number of complicated questions and continuity issues you could ever ask about her suit have now been washed away. And I'm sure when we see this coming on again later, it will be coming on in a fraction of a second. It will cover her suit that she's wearing normally. Her clothes will be there when she takes it off. And all of those problems have been magically solved. So I'm sure the production crew is very happy about this change. <laughs> I did like that Alex hung a lantern on it by saying, how do all these people <laughs> change their clothes so fast when all the when she's there and then all the supers show up in costume? <laughs> I think there's a fairly good question as to how long it actually takes James to put the Guardian suit on. I cannot imagine that's quick. <laughs> but what do you do? The joke was certainly funny, however ridiculous, because really, the magical suit that comes out of nowhere, the Avengers have done that with Iron Man because it is just so much easier if you <laughs> do not have to worry about any such thing. Is it cheap? Maybe, but I think it is no doubt a good thing. The only thing I'll mention about the suit is having the dinosaur being able to rip up the suit feels so weak versus how much the suit got pumped up at the end of third season. Yeah, she's been through super awful explosions and heat events. Right. This uh, shape-changed dinosaur's teeth are supposed to be sharp enough to make rags out of the cape? I don't think so. Absolutely ridiculous. And to be fair, when creating that suit in first season probably wasn't particularly realistic either. But all of the excuses and the scenes with Brainy for the need to change the suit were just so bad and so painful to watch and not funny. And I was very disappointed in all of those. They should have just decided, let's give her a new suit. We don't need to create this ridiculous excuse for it. Yeah, I'm not sure it would quite be in character for her to just be self-analytical and say, hey, I think I want a new suit. That She seems to drift and have things given to her or done to her a lot. Uh, yes, it is in fact a guy who decides that she should be out of her skirt and in pants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not her decision, really. <laughs> That's unsatisfying, to put it mildly. <laughs> so would you like to go on to the business and journalism stuff before I take on the super science? Um, sure. First of all, that is not how Pulitzers work. <laughs> uh, as we learn at the end of the episode, it's only been a month since the season finale of season four. And Pulitzers are given out every year in April, and there's just no way, no way in the world. But that's a smaller thing. That's that's just a little <laughs> problem with time, and we have problems with time on the show all the time. It is incredibly unfair for Supergirl to accept the highest award in journalism for her work as Cara Danvers when Cara Danvers quote, investigative, unquote, journalism. Well, she does do some investigative journalism work, and the stories that she w wrote were, of course, really important, taking down a president, revealing connections. But she has such an unfair advantage over every other reporter in the world. Accepting that prize is like if she entered the Olympics and won medals as Cara Dan Danvers, and <laughs> it's, it's just morally wrong for her to take that. <laughs> 
I feel. Just because her journalist integrity may be affected by the fact that her life is a lie? Yes. <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't believe that a reporter has to reveal everything about themselves in order to be a good journalist. But Kara lies all the time about stuff that's actually important. And it's it's just it's just not right. Not right at all. She interviews herself. Yes. <laughs> like yeah, and it's one thing to develop good sources, but for Kara, the reporter, to be continually using information from the DEO where she works, whether they pay her a salary or not, uh, the worst thing really is her interviewing herself as a source and not admitting who she is. But it's, it's just, it's wrong. <laughs> If there's only one way to get a story out about the president being an awful person uh, who's being manipulated by Lex Luthor, then fine, tell the story that way and keep your secret identity, but don't accept prizes. It's just wrong. Well, there are a bunch of other things that are also wrong in how Catco is run. There are. Let's move on to that. <laughs> yes, because we have two new characters, effectively. We have... Andrea Rojas. Mm-hmm. Yes. Who is, is the is niece a... of Elon Musk, apparently. Well, that's what she says. That is what she says. Uh, Elon Musk does have a sister who, in theory, could be married to her father. Sure, why not? Let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> this is an alternate universe, after all. <laughs> Making fun of uh, Musk has been a pastime of this show. Uh, they've had, in fact, a character that basically was Musk. Let's just run with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not problematic. So we get her and we get uh, William as well, who I'm pretty sure both of these characters were supposed to not like, and they make sure that we do not like either of these characters. They sure do. <laughs> There's no shades of gray here. She's just an evil corporate bimbo who wants to monetize journalism and steal everyone's soul or something. And he's... A guy who could be a good reporter, but is just as happy taking money, squeeze out the journalism from CatCo and turn it into a rev revenue product to make Ross happy. And to be fair, like, writers should be paid, and if he wants to be anything and be able to write for all those different levels and styles, that's not bad. It's just, they make sure to film him so that he is just as dislikable as possible and as, as disengaged as possible. Yeah, he's, he smirks. He corrects Kara's pronunciation in a snide way instead of just, oh, by the way, it's it's Hartleypool. Um, you know, he he's obviously a jerk. We had an editor once for Kara who was a jerk, but he actually managed to teach her some things about journalism. So he was okay <laughs> in that respect. I really doubt we're going to get anything redeeming out of either of these people. It's, it's interesting as a question because we were clearly being introduced to them to dislike them and how bad they are is yet to be seen. The show could play it in many different ways, but there's likely not going to be very positive ones, but we'll see. I thought it was interesting introducing Andrea in this point because she has her speech where everything is about clicks and... Catco has not been a particularly realistic news magazine organization for this century. True. It, it has acted kind of as a historic pastiche to news organizations 20, 30 years ago. And there was a reality distortion <laughs> around Catco for a lot of the show. So in many regards, she's saying things that obviously will sound horrible to these reporters in a news organization that doesn't really exist. But there's also 
the reality where everything she is saying is probably being said in news organizations all over this world and the importance of clicks and the importance of changing the way one writes for modern times and and all of those kinds of things. So it, it is an interesting getting sort of breath of reality to some degree. Right. She's not wrong about that, about needing to look for stories where consumers are interested. But for Kara to not understand the phrase consumer cross-platform engagement, <laughs> when Kara had a blog of her own uh, and presumably looked at how many hits she was getting on it, you know, it's and cross-platform is, you know, nothing more than sometimes Kara writes and sometimes she interviews herself as Supergirl on TV. <laughs> um, you know, it's... Cara Zorel has her own moral fiber and her own ethical guidelines that overrule anything on this planet. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, in the cases where she does apply journalistic ethics, <laughs> as i.e. not to herself, she does have some ethics, uh, but for her to be that naive means that, well, we know she wasn't taught journalism at all. So, okay. Yeah, there's, there's no way that a modern reporter should not at least be aware of other platforms, even if they'd prefer to stick to print. It's possible she was reacting in shock, not in ignorance, but they wanted the scene to show a huge dichotomy of opinion there. And they succeeded in that. Let us concede that. (laughs) They did show a big gap. (laughs) It may have been hyperbolic a bit on both sides, but they wanted to make that very, very clear. I really want to know how everyone, including James, signed what seems to be, and they would have signed it with Lena, three-year contract with a lifetime non-complete clause. That's what I really would like to understand, because the implication here is we have a three-year contract, and if you break it, you cannot compete with us in any other news organization for the rest of your life. What I understood from Andrea's speech was that when she bought the company, she changed all the contracts. And that's not how contracts work. Um, I mean, you could fire everybody and then make them sign three-year contracts with non-compete clauses if you could get them to do it. But you can't just say, I bought the company, now none of you can ever work in any other journalism venture again. That's that's not a thing. <laughs> that's not how I interpreted it. I interpreted it as a deeper stratagem. I thought that Lena, in preparation for selling Catco, got them all to sign three-year contracts with lifetime non-complete clauses. How she could accomplish that, I don't know. But that, to me felt like what they were doing there. Yeah, I mean, a one-year non-compete clause, that's that's one thing. That is, you know, <laughs> it, 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 I wouldn't say it's standard in the industry, but it is certainly a thing that a fair number Be- of papers and, and media companies do. No one would ever sign <laughs> a lifetime <laughs> clause. No one. You, you wouldn't do that for the New York Times. You wouldn't do that for... An anchor position at a TV network. No one would do that. Just crazy land. A bit of bizarreness there in terms of the writing. They just want things to be extreme so that the drama gets ramped up. And boy, that that was extreme. Yep. All right. What else do we need to discuss? I have what I would like to consider now the biggest ridiculous super science the show has ever had. I don't know. There's a lot of competition for that. but There is a lot of competition for ridiculous <laughs> super science, but I just cannot conceive of one more hyperbolic than this one. Kryptonian pods are powered by antimatter. Now, maybe they have a store of antimatter on board. Maybe they can produce antimatter on the fly. Whatever. But there's a concern of making an antimatter bomb. 
And boy, an antimatter bomb sucks. They are very dangerous. How easy is it to make an antimatter bomb? If you have antimatter, it's really easy to make an antimatter bomb. You just mm -hmm. let go. Hard to say how hard it is, but maybe it was difficult to manage the antimatter or get it all out or who knows what. But even that super science, I'll let fly. But it's the line describing this supposed bomb they're worried about. Strong enough to destroy all life across three solar systems. What does any of that mean? What unit is three solar systems? Which three solar systems? What life? I don't understand. I mean, really, you could just say destroy three solar systems because it wouldn't target life specifically. That doesn't make any sense still. <laughs> But even then, and I just had to look it up, just how much energy is the sun producing? So roughly how much matter is the sun eradicating and turning into energy? And the answer is the sun is turning billions of kilograms of matter into energy all the time. And an antimatter bomb is basically just taking whatever that matter is and turning it into energy. So it could do a lot of damage in a city. You could maybe blow up a planet. Point of order, the sun does not destroy matter. It goes through a fusion process. So your correspondence isn't going to be exact, but I think even if the whole pod were composed of antimatter, I don't think that would be enough to destroy the whole solar system, let alone three of them. We might need to find some uh, listeners to confirm. My understanding is that the sun loses a, about a billion kilograms of matter a day. And even though fusion does take whatever it is at the different levels, there is still a loss of physical matter in that process. So okay. you get a different element and energy. Okay, yes. The reality is, is the amount of mass totally lost by the the sun should roughly correlate to that amount of mass being turned into energy outside of solar flares and just matter being expelled off of the surface as well. But conceptually, there's no way an antimatter bomb could blow up the sun, let alone three solar systems. I just... <laughs> anyway, I just had to go off on that. I, I could not cope with three solar systems. Maybe it's like an alien unit of measurement, <laughs> but uh, we, we understand what a parsec is now, at least. <laughs> right. Well, I am not convinced that this is the worst super science we've ever heard on this show. I would have to go back and look through other examples, but I've I've heard other stuff that staggered me much more than several orders of magnitude of explosiveness. That's true. Basically, all of the last fight with Midnight has a couple cute lines, but I, I don't understand the use of the terms black hole, the void, solar flare. None of them really make any sense. I think they just win, and John avoids being spaghettified by the black hole. <laughs> no event horizon actually comes into play, so really, okay, Midnight's gone. Back to the plot. I may be giving it a little short shrift because I kept wanting the plot to go back to the other stuff that I cared about, <laughs> but just wasn't interesting. So I am interested in the creepy little girl shapeshifter who's actually, so he claims, John's brother, maybe from another multiverse. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in where that's going to go and what's behind it. But Midnight was just a throwaway plotline. One of the weakest monsters of the week this show has ever had. And maybe that's just because some of the stuff with John and Kara and Lena stuff and Brainy and Nia stuff was so good 
that maybe it was just in sharp relief. But really, I'll take an episode of Lena just talking to her AI, because that was more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Hope is a more interesting character than Midnight. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting how pushy Hope was. Aren't you going to release your, your thing? You said you were going to release it at nine. What's going on? Why aren't you releasing it? Would you like me to help kill Supergirl now? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, presumably Lena designed uh, this AI as an assistant, but it seems to be trying to make policy decisions. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely a go-getter because, I mean, effectively, Hope is the replacement for Eve. Hope is very engaged. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll be interesting to see because Hope, of course, being written to not have emotions and clearly to not have ethics, there are no three laws going on there. Right. And we're going to see how... All of this technology story arc and how hope plays into that as well, because those could get connected later on in the plot. And it's possible hope is going to be more of a problem even for Lena. So we'll see how the season portrays it going forward. Well, speaking of assistance, do you have any hypotheses on who blackbagged Eve Tessmacher? I have no idea. She's already working for the new clandestine organization that's going to be showing up this season, which whose name matters so little that I've now forgotten it. Mm-hmm. But if it wasn't them capturing her, I really don't know. So I, I think we'll just have to wait for that reveal. Did you have any ideas there? Not really. I mean, I could speculate about past villains coming back, but there's nothing to hang it on. And there's a real question as to whether John's brothers, the future reveal, how much of that is to do with this show's plot or how much that has to do with the crossover. Right. There's going to be a lot probably leading up to the Crisis on Infinite Earths. Mm -hmm. It's hard to tell, kind of looking at the show, which of these elements might actually only really exist for the sake of that crossover. Right. Speaking of the crossover, I am suddenly more interested in it now than I was at all at the end of the actual last crossover from last season, completely because I understand that there are going to be a lot of Supermans in this one, including Brandon <laughs> Ruth, and I just love Love that. <laughs> I like the Superman from the Supergirl show. Uh, uh, I can't think of his the actor's name at the moment, but I like him. But I'm just really excited by the idea of seeing all these alternate Supermans, including, you know, uh, Brandon Ruth, who I thought did a good job in Superman Returns. I thought that the problems, the movie was not popular because of the plot, not because of him. And I loved him and Legends of Tomorrow. And there are other uh, Supermans also going to be there. I have hope for the crossover. I am on record really not liking the last crossover episode because, for the most part, they really were just a prologue for this year's crossover. Mm -hmm. But hopefully that meant that there was enough groundwork that this year's crossover will be much stronger. So it'll be really interesting to see it. There are various casting information online. There are a couple shots from the sets and shots from the characters. As far as I can tell, it's basically filming right now. I haven't gone around in Vancouver to see where it's filming. <laughs> I'm sure they're out and about. I have hope that the crossover will be a lot better this year, and it'll be wild to see just what they do with it. I do still plan on uh, reading The uh, Crisis on Infinite Earth. I still have that uh, trade. <laughs> I'll have to actually give that a read before the show. I'm sure that is a pointless endeavor, but I will do so anyway. 
<laughs> well, good luck to you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I will not be joining you in that. All right. Uh, there's a couple of other CW things I want to talk about, but do you have anything else you want to say about Supergirl? The only thing else of note is that James did quit. So we will see him in a different place in the show going forward. And there are also some casting rumors about that as well. I don't know if those are formally known. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with James' character. Hmm. Well, the easy and character conservative solution would be to have James and Jean private eyes <laughs> together. That would be pretty good and probably <laughs> better than just having him join the DEO, which is the other normal solution. Blah, no, I don't want that. I still would like a spin-off of just them running a PI agency. I think that would be pretty good. <laughs> yes. Yes, that would be fun. <laughs> okay, so they've introduced a couple of new shows and probably the most prominent of them is Batwoman. In the crossover, I thought Ruby Rose as Kate Kane was kind of stiff, but she's a little more interesting here. My opinion, though, is that the show is full of tropes such as daddy issues and a Joker knockoff Alice character, and it's not terribly interesting yet, but there are things that could become interesting. And I can talk more about that, but first I'd like to hear your thought about it. I enjoyed the new Batwoman. I thought it was certainly better than the moments we got from her in the crossover. I agree that the changes they've made from the comics regarding her interaction with her father feels like a little bit of a letdown, but maybe they'll improve that going forward. There was this question as to whether you needed to see the crossover for this episode to make sense, and this is a prequel, of course, to the crossover, but it also missed a few scenes that were shown in the crossover. The crossover gives you the scene where she actually is in an office in the military refusing to sign things to say that she's not gay, and she refuses to. And I think unfortunate that they had that scene in the crossover, but didn't have that scene repeat in this episode. And there's bits of the episode which I felt rushed a little. I think it felt too much like they were very quickly trying to set up Batwoman as being Batwoman in a Batcave, and they didn't need to push it that quickly. I would have liked to have seen that trans go a little slower, there were some reveals in the episode, we should try and keep this spoiler free probably, which I think were reveals that were a surprise or a twist in the comic, and the TV show does them faster, and that's probably for the best. So I don't know. I, I have hope for the show. It, it felt a little, a little kludgy trying to make sure everything was in place just to, with one episode. But maybe the next episodes will present better. I hope so. Uh, one thing I'd really like to see explored, but I doubt we will see, would be the Crows as corporate cops. Apparently, police have just given up, or the city has given up on police or something. We could explore civil liberty issues and who gets their paid justice and who falls through the cracks. That could be interesting, but I don't feel... I don't have any sense that there's going to be any exploration of that. I think it would certainly give it a few more episodes before I would try and get a feel of the vibe. Because effectively, they set up enough in this episode that the next episode will be maybe more consistent with the vibe of the actual show. Things may settle a bit. Fair. And we'll maybe get a better view. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll certainly give it a couple more episodes, but just from the premiere, I'm watching it out of curiosity, not out of engagement. We'll see how that goes going forward. And of course, I can always keep watching to see if my dream of Maggie Sawyer coming onto the show ever comes true. <laughs> you know, it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's all I need. It's possible. <laughs> Let's see. So another show that the CW premiered this this week was Nancy Drew, and uh, I watched it, and it was fine. With all the other things I want to watch, I'm probably not going to make it a habit. It's no Veronica Mars, but who could possibly match Veronica Mars? <laughs> That one I have not tried, so we'll, I may give it a shot. We'll see. Okay, any other shows or issues you want to discuss? Honestly, the biggest thing I'm curious about for the crossover going forward will be how it feels to get Black Lightning characters into the CW universe. Mm. I really, really like Black Lightning, and it just has such a different feel than uh, the rest of CW that it'll be interesting to see that. It really does, and I think... It's definitely one of the best CW shows, if not the best. That would be a difficult choice. But yeah, that's a show that I definitely faithfully watch and keep up with as it airs. Not just binging once in a while, but it's a great show. I haven't seen numbers for what its audience is, but since it got renewed for a third season, hopefully it's, you know, got decent uh, audience. And I'm just so interested by the issues that they tackle and that they keep tackling. You know, they don't just bring something up and then never hear from it again. Uh, the civil liberties, the injustice in policing and government takeovers of territory and, and interesting people on it. I'm very interested by the di- dynamics between uh, Black Lightning and um, his wife and his two daughters uh, who are distinct from each other. You know, it's it's a great show and more people should watch it. Absolutely. Viewership definitely seems to be down from first season to second season. Mm. Hopefully that will continue to increase. And I have not actually seen the first episode of third season yet. Well, it's uh, definitely some things are changing and I'm really interested to see where this season goes. Okay, I think that's about going to do it uh, for our discussion today. I'd like to thank you, as always, David, for another interesting conversation. Happy to be here. And I'd like to thank our editor, whoever that ends up being, if it's you or one of the other friends of the show. And I'd like to thank The Incomparable for hosting us. And most of all, I'd like to thank the listeners. You can get in contact with us on Twitter at SG Supercast or on the member Slack for The Incomparable, probably on the TV channel. Thanks. Talk to you later.